You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. Big, big news day in Washington yesterday with the ninth and likely last public hearing of the January 6th Select Committee, and we'll get to that in the Opinions Roundtable. But there was other big news, notably new high inflation numbers. Yasmin Abutaleb, Washington Post White House reporter, is here to tell us what it all means. Yasmin, welcome back to First Look. Good to be back, Jonathan. Um, I think, you know, the there's been sort of these twin forces in the economic news really all of this year. And then, of course, over the last two weeks, you you still have really strong job growth, uh, only three and a half percent unemployment, which, you know, is good for any president. But then, of course, these stubbornly high inflation numbers uh, that the president hoped would come down. Of course, this is not good news. Only four weeks, less than four weeks out from the midterms. Um, and then, uh, you know, lots of warnings this week about the U.S. probably entering a recession sometime in the next six to nine months. Okay, let's talk more about uh, um, about this fear of recession. Um, here's what the president said to CNN's Jake Tapper when asked about the possibility of a recession. Watch. It hadn't happened yet. It hadn't. Be- there, there has. There is no. There's no guarantee that there's going to be. Re- I don't think there will be a recession. If it is, it'll be a very slight recession. That is, we'll move down slightly. So we heard what the president said there. That interview was done, I believe, or it was done earlier in the week. But given the inflation numbers released yesterday, how worried now is the White House about inflation? Or, uh, inflation, but also the possibility of a recession. Sorry. No, I think I think they're extremely concerned, and you've seen this since the summer. Over the summer, uh, when there were sort of initial fears that there they, there might be a recession uh, just before the midterms, you saw them kind of quibbling with the technical definition of a recession, which is probably not something that's going to work on most Americans because if things are expensive and things are hard to afford, that's really all that matters. But when you look in the polling, I mean, this is a huge, huge issue for the president and for Democrats. It's probably the main thing bringing down his poll numbers on the economy. You know, Republicans are much more trusted than Democrats. Um, people are not happy with, with Biden's handling of the economy just because they're feeling it so directly. Things are so expensive um, and the cost of living is getting higher. And then I think, you know, all these warnings this week from the IMF to Jamie Dimon that the U.S. is going to enter a recession in the next several months really does have the White House on edge. I think they still feel like there are good economic indicators. You know, job growth is strong. But I think the thing that everyone will be looking for is to see if companies start laying people off because that will be the a sign that this could be a very difficult period. Right. And there's been reporting, you know, within the last month about how the official declaration of a recession comes from this one particular body. And they usually don't make that declaration until maybe a year or two after everyone is like, tell us something we don't know. <laughs> we, we, we don't know. Uh, one more question on this. And Um, You sort of touched on it in your last answer, but with these new inflation numbers and the rising concern about um, us actually being in a recession, how is the White House reacting to the potential impact that we'll have at the ballot box in November? 
Well, I think this is something that they're really struggling with and that Democrats are struggling with. You actually saw Bernie Sanders this week come out with an op-ed saying Democrats need to talk about the economy. They cannot just talk about abortion and think that's going to what's going to win them elections. They need to find an economic message and stick to it. But I think you've actually seen not the president so much. He's out there touting elements of the Inflation Reduction Act. He's trying to point to these policies that his administration and, and Democrats in Congress have passed in the last few months that they believe will help Americans with their costs, help Americans with inflation. So you've seen him, you know, he's out on the West Coast right now doing this big swing, touting different elements of the Inflation Reduction Act, of the bipartisan infrastructure law, showing how, you know, people's lives are getting better because of the policies he's passed. He's talked a lot about how this is going to lower people's costs, particularly the drug pricing provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and, you know, he's obviously looking to the positive economic news to try to not scare people so much. But I think you see Democrats more broadly really struggling with how they should talk about the economy right now. And I think there's a little bit of, of some gun shyness uh, because the polling shows Republicans hold a sizable advantage on this. And so they're trying to focus on other issues. But in doing that, I think they're, they're ignoring what is the number one issue across the country right now. Right. Republicans have the advantage polling wise on in handling inflation in the economy. Democrats have the advantage on threats to democracy, abortion. Um, let's switch gears, Yasmin, and talk about um, Ukraine, Russia's war on Ukraine. You wrote this week that President Biden has spent a lot of time working to keep the Western alliance, uh, the Western coalition supporting Ukraine and keeping it together. Is the coalition really in danger of splintering? Right now, it still looks pretty solid. I think it's important to note that the U.S. pushed for a big U.N. vote this week that, condemning Russia's annexation of these four Ukrainian territories, and they got 143 members of this 193-member body to support the resolution. And that's a pretty strong showing. This is even a little bit more than what they had back in March condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that's, I mean, that's a good sign for them. That seems to indicate that they have maintained and even gained a little bit of diplomatic ground, even as there's this very difficult economic picture. But I think there are a lot of challenges in the next few weeks, few months, and, and keeping this coalition together. I mean, one is that gas prices are starting to go back up, especially with OPEC deciding to cut back on production. So you've already seen them starting to go back up, and there might be a big, uh, a sizable increase in prices in the next few weeks, next few months. Uh, Europe is very anxious about a difficult winter and the energy costs that could come with that. So, I mean, I think the coalition is, is held together right now, but there are a lot of concerns and a lot of challenges in getting through, you know, what is expected to be a pretty difficult winter. And meanwhile, here at home, there's a new, a recent Pew Research poll shows that, quote, the share of Americans who are extremely or very concerned about a Ukrainian defeat fell from 55% in May to 38% in September. So I guess the question here is, how concerned is the White House that while it's successful in holding the international coalition together, that public support here at home is diminishing? I think there's there's kind of two prongs to this. So on the one hand, the White House, when you ask officials there, how long are you going to support Ukraine? What does the end of the war look like? How does it end? You know, they they do not want to play any role in in what terms the Ukrainians accept. They said they are not going to force them to any kind of negotiated settlement. So no one knows how or when this war ends. And I think it's safe to assume it's not going to be any time in the next several months. On the other hand, they do privately acknowledge that this is going to be a challenge for them. Right now, they have been able to to uh, keep, 
maintain pretty broad bipartisan support for these massive multi-billion dollar weapons and aid packages for Ukraine. Uh, they just uh, got another $12 billion one through Congress just a couple of weeks ago. But I think they know, you know, if public support starts to soften, which we're uh, we're already seeing, as you pointed out in the Pew poll, um, and especially for Republicans take control of the House, it could become much, much more difficult for them to get support for these bills. And, and the other thing is some Republicans in Congress, particularly those aligned with President Trump right now, I think are already responding to that and already starting to express some skepticism of all this money going to Ukraine and why. Um, and so I think, you know, they could start to respond to that. And if they do take control of the House, it just be, could become more difficult to bring these bills up. I'm glad you brought that up. We still have a couple minutes left. Any indication or any public statements that you know of from House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who is hoping that if Republicans retake the House, he'll become the next speaker, where he stands on on financial support of Ukraine. I think it's a little bit unclear. He personally has not really made any any kind of defining statements on, on how he feels on aid on Ukraine. I think the bigger question is, how is he going to respond to what we expect to be a pretty sizable contingency of uh, MAGA Republicans in Congress, Republicans aligned with President Trump? You've seen Don Jr., Donald Trump himself, already expressing skepticism about these packages. There's almost this kind of pro-Putin wing of people aligned with Donald Trump right now. You've seen it at Trump rallies. So I think the bigger question is not so much how Kevin McCarthy personally feels about it, but how he's going to respond to the contingency of members in his caucus who, you know, fight these bills or, or try to add on things that make them unpalatable or impossible to pass. Oh, it's going to be a very interesting next few weeks. And then after the midterms, next few months. Yasmin Abu Talib, Washington Post White House reporter, thank you very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks, Jonathan. We're going to keep the conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my Washington Post colleagues, Charles Lane and Jennifer Rubin. Jennifer and Chuck, welcome back to First Look. Good morning. All right. So we got to start this conversation talking about the ninth and likely last public hearing of the January 6th committee, um, which at the end had a very dramatic um, um, punctuation, uh, exclamation point is the word I'm looking for. The, the members voted unanimously to subpoena former President Donald Trump. Um, and this is to both of you, Jennifer, since you're the, you are the lawyer here. Um, you go first. Your thoughts on the hearing and your reaction to the subpoena of the former president? The subpoena, I don't think, is a real attempt to get him to appear. I would sincerely doubt that Donald Trump, who does not want to testify under oath, uh, for example, in the New York proceedings, took the fifth 400 times or 500 times, something like that, that he'll actually appear. But I think they wanted to do this to show that they have given him every opportunity. And then in writing the report, they can say the public can draw the inference that um, had he testified or testified truthfully, um, the testimony would have been damaging to him. So I think that's um, more for um, public consumption and politics than for the real chance that he'll show up. As far as the hearing is concerned, I think there were three things that were really significant. 
One, um, you have to really wonder what was going on with the FBI and the Secret Service. The amount mm-hmm. of warning that they had that there was real trouble, the legitimate threats that they knew about were stunning. And I think there has to be an entire other investigation, um, maybe in the next Congress, um, of both the FBI and the Secret Service. I think the second thing that we learned from this is how deliberate and how methodical Trump was in planning to declare that he had won, in planning to uh, draw the mob there. Um, There was this notion afoot that somehow he was so nuts that maybe he believed his own stuff. Um, But I think there was enough evidence here that at times he acknowledged that he really hadn't won. And it was fascinating to see that he had actually signed an order that would have pulled out the troops right before Joe Biden took office, suggesting that he knew he was on the way out. And I think the final um, element of this is to remind people um, that the Republicans have been so duplicitous about this. When you see Nancy Pelosi in those very gripping clips, um, really trying to save her people, trying to contact the Defense Department, the vice president. She is scrambling. She's in charge on the Hill. And for the Republicans later to claim that somehow she was responsible or that it was no big deal really still shocks the conscience. Um, And I think uh, going into the election, for those voters who care about it, there may not be a lot of them, um, it's one more reminder of how dishonest and really contemptible these people have been. Chuck, your thoughts. It's hard to uh, hard to add too much to that very comprehensive overview. I share Jen's view that the subpoena is more about symbolism and maybe even a little uh, TV theater than the reality of having him testify. He will, you know, I, I didn't think he would testify truthfully if he ever testified and he won't testify. Um, I, I take away from this hearing the same thing in a way that I've taken away from all of them, which is that, you know, you sort of mentally check out a little bit about the reality of January 6th when it's not in front of you visually. Um, I mean, I, I have vivid recollection of that day. Um, but to, to have the visuals come back again, particularly those that Jen mentioned of the group of both Republicans and Democrats cowering in a way, well, Pelosi wasn't cowering, but a number of them sort of hiding out in this safe location is really uh, uh, chilling. And I just feel that um, it's it's useful as a citizen to be reminded visually and viscerally of the violent reality of that day. And there's really no denying that Donald Trump's uh, actions, whatever their motivations, were the, the proximate cause of all of it. It is a terrible, terrible chapter in American history. The first time ever we did not truly have um, a peaceful transition of power uh, from one president to another. And it leaves you wondering what might happen in 2024. Um, There is, um, as Jen said, there is a paucity of impact from this hearing uh, outside the Democratic Party base. And I I think that reality is of concern. you know, now, and you guys can correct me if if I'm wrong, and this is an, as used to say in the old days, an all skate from the um, roller rink days. Um, I think attention now turns to the Attorney General of the United States. Uh, And I don't know if you have seen Franklin Foer's latest piece in The Atlantic, uh, where he makes a convincing case, to my mind, 
that he believes the attorney general will indict uh, the former president, will indict Donald Trump. Now, whether you've read the piece or, or not, do you think, given everything that we have seen so far, do you think the attorney general will make that historic move? Chuck, you go first. I haven't read Frank's piece, although I've, uh, I've heard uh, about it, as you said. Uh, honestly, I think I don't know enough to say. I feel that there have been leaks out of the investigation related to the Mar-a-Lago case, which is separate in a way from January mm -hmm. 6th, although obviously related, that suggests there is a very serious criminal investigation going on there. I think this is the kind of thing that Merrick Garland uh, you know, understands would be absolutely historic and unprecedented. And of course, as you know, in the law, unprecedented is not always a compliment. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think he is weighing it extremely carefully and extremely closely. Uh, and there would, you know, I think, I think the important thing to think about is what would be the real world impact of such an indictment? Because I think it can't be looked at in political isolation from what reverberations it would have that might even be counterproductive and so we'll just have to see. Jen? I definitely think that the chances of an indictment arising out of Mar-a-Lago are higher and very high, actually. Um, the degree of obstruction that Donald Trump engaged in, including apparently from latest news reports, um, ordering his people to remove boxes after he had received a subpoena, is the sort of what they call aggravating factor that often leads to an indictment in the case of uh, confidential information, top secret information that has been mishandled. One wonders when you would ever prosecute a case um, other than Donald Trump if you didn't prosecute in this situation, given the gravity, the seriousness of the information, the steps to avoid um, producing them, the deceit of the government. Um, I think there's a high probability that in fact we'll see charges from that. It's also a somewhat easy case insofar as the facts are limited, the witnesses are limited. Um, there's a lot of it that is on tape as it were, um, doesn't depend upon witnesses. So I would rank um, the chances of an indictment there as fairly high. I go back and forth, frankly, on um, January 6th. Um, on one hand, there's no doubt in my mind um, of a moral obligation here, a moral responsibility. Um, the demands of the law in cases involving seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to uh, commit fraud and so on, are very exacting. You have to go step by step through the elements of each crime and be able to prove them beyond a reasonable doubt with admissible evidence, not with hearsay, not with uh, rumor, not with just public reporting, but with actual witnesses and documents. Um, do I think that there is a case to be made? Absolutely. But I also think the risk of losing is very, very high. And to indict him and not have a conviction would be a terrible, terrible precedent. So I think I remain up in the air about uh, January 6th. Let's also not forget there is a criminal investigation in the state of Georgia by the Fulton County DA that is looking at that infamous phone call or series of calls trying to find just enough votes for Donald Trump to win. And it's possible she may indict as well. That's also a case where you have very limited facts and you have Trump on tape, so it makes it that much easier. One more question to you, Jennifer, on this before we turn to the recession and the economy. On the front page of the Washington Post today, 
Um, it says, witness said to be Trump's valet while at White House. And this is a, another um, brick in the wall of reporting from the Washington Post about the movement of, of papers at Mar-a-Lago. And this person, as was reported in the Post earlier this week, has been cooperating with the feds, with, with investigators telling them that after those subpoenas arrived at Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump himself told him to move those papers to the, to the uh, private residence. The legal significance of that, new, of that evidence that we now know publicly, Jen. It's twofold. One is that obstruction is its own crime, that you're not allowed to conceal documents, hide documents, take deliberate steps to thwart an FBI or a Justice Department investigation, which this clearly was. And secondly, as we said before, when you're looking at the underlying crime, um, whether it's the Espionage Act or um, other document uh, related crimes, Usually you don't prosecute if it's been an innocent um, effort, if there's been no other aggravating circumstances. But this is an aggravating circumstance <laughs> and it makes it that much more likely that uh, he'll be in trouble. I'd also point out that it's not the only person on the inside who's providing evidence. He now has one or more lawyers um, who are cooperating with the uh, FBI. So um, if I were Donald Trump, I'd be pretty paranoid about everyone around me running to the <laughs> FBI and the Justice Department to give them the latest uh, scoop. But mm -hmm. uh, I think there are a number of eyes and ears that the Justice Department uh, are using within the Mar-a-Lago uh, compound. All right, Chuck, let's turn to the economy. The new inflation data released yesterday shows that inflation is up 8.2% over um, September of last year. With the economy being the number one issue for voters in the latest polls, can President Biden and Democrats convince voters that they can be trusted with the economy? Well, if you just look at poll numbers, you'd have to say, not anytime soon because the gap between Republicans and Democrats is so great. I think the House is almost certainly lost to the Democrats. Their hope of maintaining the Senate, frankly, lies in the fact that the Republicans nominated sketchy candidates in places like Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Arizona that make it difficult for them to capitalize on these uh, bad economic numbers for the president. So in that sense, I guess you could say the Democrats have actually been kind of lucky. The bigger question is, I believe, for the next two years, because this inflation, all the economists are now realizing, is very deeply rooted, which means that it would require more drastic uh, interest rate hikes over more time from the Federal Reserve to kind of crush it back down. I'm old enough to remember the last time the Fed did that in 1981-82 and lingering into 83, and unemployment reached double digits. Uh, there's good reason to expect that it wouldn't be quite such a severe recession this time. But we are probably looking at the prospect of a, at least a dramatic slowing in the economy over 2023. And of course, you know that that is not going to create a good political environment for the Democrats in 2024 when they have even more uh, Senate seats at risk. And of course, the presidency will be up for grabs as well. And one more ch uh, question to you, Chuck. How much of an impact? Um, is the OPEC plus 2 million barrel a day reduction actually having on gas prices here? I think it takes time for that to work through the economic system globally. Obviously, it's 
not good for gas prices. They will tick up. They were already ticking up before it was done. Some data I've seen suggests that actually this is this production cut exists more on paper than in reality, although it will still be in reality several hundred thousand barrels. Um, but no, it's not a good short run development for President Biden's political fortunes, which like those of any president are always going to be tied to that absolutely crucial price, which is the price of petroleum, um, which, by the way, is not just something consumers experience on a daily basis at the pump. It works its way through into the price of everything else that has to be transported to a grocery store and that people buy. Jen, I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well. But, you know, President Biden talked to CNN's Jake Tapper earlier in the week, and he said, quote, I don't think there will be a recession. If it is, it will be a very slight recession. Jen, does it matter to voters if we are technically, if we are or are not technically in a recession? I really don't think it does. I think they make an evaluation about their own personal finances. They make an evaluation about um, who they think is responsible and whether it's, as you point out, a body that two years down the road goes behind closed doors or they just see, um, frankly, the rise in prices. Um, they are gonna make a decision based upon kind of their gut um, real life experience. And I think Democrats have learned that um, it doesn't make sense to talk people out of it, to say, oh, it's not that bad, or um, you're really not suffering that much. Um, they've been trying to empathize and point to these various cost reduction uh, measures that they have passed that they hope will ease the middle class squeeze. But I will say there's one other factor that um, continues to reverberate through the electorate. And it's one that I spotted in the spring. A lot of people didn't think it was gonna be as big an issue, but I think Dobbs and uh, abortion has become a tremendous issue. It's a tremendous issue for women. You see a now gender tilt in new voter registrants. That is that many more women than men are registering. You had that really stunning upset in Kansas. So I think in some sense, it's two different waves hitting one another. There's the red wave that's driven by inflation, and then there's the blue wave that's driven by women, by anger at the Supreme Court, and a sense that the Republicans are out of control. Uh, and that's where Chuck's point about uh, nominating a bunch of these uh, loony characters really comes back to bite the Republicans. Um, frankly, um, had they put up even to sort of plain rap Republicans uh, in Georgia, in Arizona, in Ohio of all places, uh, I think they'd have the Senate securely in hand. But uh, to the Democrats' delight, they put up some people who are really uh, sketchy is to put it mildly, Chuck, um, <laughs> you know, crazy pants um, would also fit. Uh, <laughs> that technical political term. Um, Chuck, I'm going to give you the last word here um, and get you to react to something Jennifer just said, which is that there are two two different waves hitting each other. That That's what this midterm election is looking like. Do you agree? Actually, I uh, do agree with that. I think it's actually well said. Um, but I would add that it seems that the blue wave attached to abortion is starting to ebb a little bit, uh, that the, the timing on that was a little, in a way, early for Democratic fortunes, I think. And of course, we now have this fresh news on inflation, which gives Republicans a last minute talking point that's very much in their favor. And so I have to say, I find myself in rare agreement with Bernie Sanders in terms of his political 
judgment, which is that, yes, I know Jonathan's uh, shocked. I don't want to cause you a heart attack here on a Friday morning. Wow. But, but I think Bernie has a good point, which is that the Democrats went all in on abortion. They flooded the airwaves uh, with ads on that, but they don't, they don't have a compelling economic message, or at least not one that they feel that would, uh, would work in, the, in, in this election in the key states. And that is probably going to, you know, that's probably going to be a factor. Their inability to articulate something really compelling on the economic side, even though, as Jen says, they have a couple of pieces of legislation to talk about, uh, but nothing more forward looking than that. Wow, I'm still a little stunned by this lambs and lions moment you just gave me. (laughs) (laughs) Just gave me Chuck. I want to be interesting for you, John. Charles Lane, Jennifer Rubin, as always, thank you very much for coming on First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.